throughout Advent, the Church gives us the opportunity to reflect on this character of John the Baptist. If you take some time to consider what this guy must have been like, come up with a lot of different fascinating ideas, and he really is a person of, of great wonder. I mean, who's this guy who spends all his time in the desert uh, with, you know, camel skin for uh, cloak and eating locusts and wild honey, um, and essentially screaming like a, like a madman, sort of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he's somebody who, I mean, today, if someone like John the Baptist were crying out in the way that John was, we would probably all consider him to be fairly nuts. Uh, and most of us, well, maybe some of us would be interested and be drawn one way or the other, and a lot of us would kind of say, okay, I'm going to go back to doing whatever it is that I normally do on a regular basis. This guy was somebody who uh, was, he, he was, he was polarizing in a certain kind of sense, right? I mean, they kill him in the end. So we understand uh, exactly how it was that he is, is influencing the world around him, and yet he also draws so many people to himself. I, should, I shouldn't say that. Because he doesn't draw them to himself. He is very happy to be just a stopgap. He's very happy just to be the voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. He's very happy to say, he must increase our Lord, and I must decrease. And somebody who understood in a way that many could only hope for the Word of God. He's a prophet. He's the greatest of all the prophets, is the language of Scripture. He is the one who is chosen by God from the beginning to be the precursor. The one who is proclaiming in those final moments the coming and the presence of the Savior. And so why is it that he is so attractive? Why is it that he is so, uh, that he draws so many people out from the world, out from the complacency of the world into the desert for this, as the gospel say it, for this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? He's able to, to help people to see that they need conversion. We live in a world today that doesn't like to hear that it needs conversion. You tell somebody that they've sinned or that they messed up in one way or another, and what do you get? Don't judge me. Something along those lines. And yet, we know that in many ways, many hearts are just as much in need of conversion now as all of those hearts 2,000 years ago. Maybe more so now. Maybe more so now than they were 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we've already heard the gospel. We spent 2,000 years as a, as a world contemplating the gospel. And we live in what people call a post-Christian society. That's a frightening idea. A post-Christian society. Meaning, they've looked at the gospel and they've said, Nah, I don't think so. Become disillusioned to the goodness of what Christ has come to give and to bring. And so all the more so than now does the world need to hear, need to be shaken up a little bit and recognize and hear again this call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins because we know our Lord is going to come again. And His language, various times in Scripture, but when, a, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? 
So why is it that John the Baptist is such uh, a, uh, an attractive figure to some? And why is it that he's so polarizing in other ways? I think the short answer is that he's 100% completely uncompromising in his proclamation of the gospel. There is not a moment when he is willing to let go of what the gospel is and proclaims. It doesn't matter who it is who is challenging him or who it is he happens to be preaching to. He is 100% uncompromising. A little say elsewhere in the gospel, what did you go out in the desert to see? Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? Like that's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not a weak figure. John the Baptist is not somebody who is blown in every direction by all the winds of, of ideas and current events and whatever else. He's the kind of person who holds firmly to what has been given by God. And precisely because of that, those hearts which are willing, willing to hear him and to receive his word are in fact converted. And they're willing, they're willing to repent. They're willing to receive his, his baptism of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's also the reason that those who are unwilling to believe the word that he proclaims have to use any and every means against him to keep him silent. We know those voices are still, well, loud enough in the world today. The voices that want to, to keep the Christian message silent. The voices that want to silence the prophets of God. It's all of us, by the way, have been given that prophetic gift and vocation. Because by our baptism, first and foremost, we are priests, prophet, and kings. And it's deepened and, and confirmed, we say, in our confirmation. We're sent forth to proclaim the same gospel that John preached. His baptism, well, it's even more now. Not just the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, but the baptism of forgiveness unto salvation which is the sacrament that we have received. And so Advent then, as the time to prepare for the coming of Christ, not just at Christmas, but also at the end of time, or maybe whenever I happen to see him face to face after my own passing. So Advent is a, is a time to, to deepen that sense of preparation in my own heart and in my own life that the uncompromising spirit of John the Baptist might also be mine and everything that I say and that I do. It's the witness that the world needs. Is the world going to rebel against us? Sure. What's new? We're used to it. We've seen it. And, you know, and we also proclaim, in the end, the beauty and the glory of that persecution and martyrdom for us who have been given the grace to receive it. In the first reading today, when the prophet Baruch tells us, tells Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery and put on the splendor of glory from God forever. And the psalm, the Lord, the Lord has done great things for us. We're filled with joy. And when the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men dreaming. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with rejoicing. See, John the Baptist had that joy of the gospel deep within him, precisely because he was uncompromising, precisely because he was able to inculcate within himself, by God's grace, the fullness of the word of God that was given to him. And so likewise, we have the opportunity to share in the joy of Christ.
by our uncompromising spirit and not to be not understanding or not to be uh, in any way, uh, how do we say it, dismissive uh, of anyone who has struggled with the gospel in, in any kind of way, but rather to hold firmly to the joy that's been given to us in the gospel. It feels like a command, doesn't it? Take off your robe of mourning and misery. How do you command somebody to rejoice? You only command someone to rejoice if the source of that joy is, is in fact given to them. And so to all of us who have known the joy of being forgiven of sin, to all of us who have known the joy of living a holy and a healthy and a good Christian life, that joy is, is offered. To all of us who know the joy of intimacy with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, now we have something that the world desires. But we can only proclaim it if we too are uncompromising. Uncompromising with sin or anything that gets in the way of the gospel being deepened in my own heart and in my own life. And so as we turn to the altar to be strengthened in the gift that Christ has given by the gift of Christ himself again, we ask him to make us not just instruments of his peace, but also instruments of his joy, that the whole world might know the salvation of